Welcome to Bon Jovi Discussions. Today I have a very, very, very special guest that needs no introduction, but he's going to get one anyway. This this man has worked with Bon Jovi, Kiss, Meatloaf, Aerosmith, Katy Perry, Ricky Martin. The list just goes on. He's a Grammy winner, Emmy-nominated hitmaker. He's been inducted into the Songwriter Hall of Fame in 2008, and he serves on the board of ASCAP. And the accolades just could go on. But let, I want to welcome Desmond Desmond Child. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. It's great to I'm, have I'm, you. I'm above ground, so that's fantastic, right? Exactly. And I was just telling you how, how good you look for 69. Oh, well. <laughs> um, so obviously I want, I want to dive right into the book because um, for this interview, I kind of got to read. The, you mean this book? That book right there, man, look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Look at this. That's a lot of hits. Sure is. And that's not all of them either. No, no, no. I, there wasn't a room on the on the book cover to put them. So I had to, you know, toss out, you know, the the unwanted or the the rejected or the neglected children. You got <laughs> to pick your favorite. Now, how, how many Bon Jovi ones are on the back there? Let's see. Bon Jovi. One, two, uh, three. Four, four, meaning meaning living on a prayer. You give love a bad name, and then the next one is bad medicine, and then there's another one. I'm born to be my baby. Awesome, the big the four monster hits there. Well, you know, as as I was mentioning um, prior to this interview, I got to read the book, and you know, there's four about four hundred pages in that book, and. I couldn't put the book down. It was there. It was, it's so revealing and it's so good because you kind of give. And it, as uh, the author David Ritz says in the book, that there was you. You told him no off-limit questions, and you pretty much pretty much wore your heart on your sleeve, revealing a lot. Not only with Bon Jovi, but all these other artists that you worked with, and it was kind of nice to get get an interpretation from somebody that worked with these big name artists. You didn't sugarcoat anything. You didn't put them on this pedestal. You kind of told some stories that were pretty revealing. Pretty, and I don't want to give anything away because I want people to get this book. Um, what, what was what was this? What gave you this idea to make this book? I think it was one of those things that you know you get to a certain age, and we started the book six years ago um, with my. With my, I started it with my collaborator David Ritz, who's written a lot of music, celebrity, um, well, not even celebrity legends like Ray Charles and Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin, their uh, autobiographies, and where he serves as the ghostwriter. So it's really all in my voice, and um, and a lot of it is because um, he would ask me questions and I'd answer them and he would tape them, send them to the transcriber and he built the whole book on my answers. Wow. What, how much did you hold back though when it came time to talk about, like, like for example, I won't give it away, but the whole Aerosmith story about meeting Joe Perry and Steven Tyler for the first time. I mean, how, how much were you just like, you know, I'm just gonna, revealed it all well not all but I'm, i i just i revealed it all 
you know i mean the whole story is very charming i think absolutely um, so you know first first day dude looks like a lady that's not bad you know first 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 one hit it out of the park you know first ball boom yeah and dude looks like a lady. that was about vince neal correct well oh, yeah inspiration. that's in a way because he was the inspiration uh i think what happened was i mean as as steven told me uh well first of all when i walked in to meet them for the first time they were working on a song called cruising for the ladies and so uh you know they had that backwards guitar that went na da 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 and so then when i um um you know they they he started singing cruising for the ladies and then uh, Stephen said well they stopped everything and then Stephen said what do you think of that and I said I think that's really bad I mean I don't think Van Halen would put that on the B side of their worst record <laughs> I was trying to be funny but you know Joe didn't think that was funny it was like you know like then the like like even more so you know kind of looking at me like who is this guy and so then Stephen who's more like a you know, gracious, people-pleasing person. He said, sheepishly said, well, originally it was called Dude, I mean, I, I got that hook was Dude Looks Like a Lady. And I said, what? Dude Looks Like a Lady? You know, Dude Looks Like a Lady. I said, how did you come up with that? And he said, well, we went to this bar nearby because they lived on the, you know, on the South Boston shore, you know, and they cruised into a bar on the shore. And um, at the end of this lonely bar sat one vision of lo loveliness, platinum bouffant, black nails, jewelry, you know, porcelain skin, and a uh, little kind of halter top kind of thing and curvy waist. And um, they were kind of drawing straws who was going to go up and say hello, you know, with the, you know, the guys and the roadies and all this. And so suddenly this vision of loveliness turned around and it was Vince Neil of Motley Crue. And then Stephen said, oh, that dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady. And so <laughs> that's how the story happened. So he's when he said, dude looks like a lady, I said, that's a hit title. And Joe, you know, a little more like, we don't know what that means. And I go, okay, don't worry about it. I know what that means. Just go with me on this, you know? And I tried to retell the story, you know, do, uh, you know, the cruising to a bar on the shore, her picture graced the grime on the door. She was a long lost love at first bite. I don't know what that means. That was Steven's line. Because <laughs> uh, then it seemed like, he's you know seen that person before or been with that person before anyway it's supposed to be a surprise when she pulls out her gun tries to blow me away right right but the thing is that what makes the song so great is that the the protagonist doesn't run away he stays he likes it and he says my funky lady i like it like it like it like that and so uh, the whole song is, you know, basically, think about it, so ahead of its time. In, and the second verse comes around and tells the real story, which is, never judge a book by its cover. 
or who you're going to love by your lover. And that's the verse they used in Mrs. Doubtfire with the broom dance. Oh, right. I didn't, I didn't realize there was a connection there. Yeah. You know, so, so they use, you know, they use that song and like every little kid in the world, you know, was listening to dude looks like a lady watching uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. So basically what we're trying to do is, you know, I was trying to do, I don't think they were so much as trying to raise the consciousness of the world by saying, Hey, if it looks good to you, go for it. Don't judge it. You know, and, and so that's the whole, that's the whole point, you know, with all of the issues now more relevant than ever, you know, it's like, you know, people who are trans or, 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 you know, like going out in drag or this or that. It's like, who cares? It's like, it does not, you know, change anyone's mind about anything because you can never make anybody any, feel in those respects, feel anything that they're not going to feel already as to who they are. Exactly. But there's no, the, the only grooming involved is if somebody's going to do somebody's hair. <laughs> exactly. That's the only grooming, you know, that's, exactly. that takes place. So, you know, they use all these tropes and things to scare people and, and um, to create hate because hate is very unifying. So if, you know, well, I hate this. Well, maybe not so much other things, but somebody else says, well, I hate this and I hate this and I hate this. And then somebody comes along and says, hey, bring me all your hates and I will represent you. And, and then all of a sudden things that you didn't hate, now you hate too, to belong to the group. And that's what's happened here. Yeah. And, and people are scared of, of ridiculous things. And it's like, I, you know, I would love the opportunity to sell, tell the people that are creating all this hatred. It's like, how about presenting some policy, you know, that's going to help, you know, improve people's lives. Stop burning books and start, you know, burning the midnight oil, trying, well, that's actually not a good example <laughs> because you, you don't want to burn the midnight oil because that causes pollution. <laughs> you know, so, so I, you know, I, I think that one of the beautiful things about being a songwriter is that you can write songs that, you know, can mean something to, you know, different to different people. Like there was a, there was a, a guy who was working for us and, um, you know, in Tennessee and he came in, came into, you know, came up to me and he says, did you write that Aerosmith song, Do a Naked Lady? <laughs> That's how he heard it. That's what he wanted to hear. He wasn't hearing dude looks like a lady. He, he was saying, dude, do a naked lady. And it was like, yeah, I wrote that. <laughs> just go with it, right? Just I just let him roll with it. I wasn't gonna like you know correct that. I thought it was funny. But you know what? What I find you know like the story that you just told about you know dude looks like a lady. You know a lot of people don't understand. It's especially like when you read this book, you kind of understand more. 
you don't realize how much effort and work that goes into writing a song, you know, a three, four minute song, people don't understand how much work it takes and the collaborations. And it's just, it, this book kind of gave me more of a perspective on that. You know what I mean? Well, to me, it's, it's, it's when you put together a song, a lot of it's like uh, eliminating until you have, you know, the David or La Pieta or whatever. Uh, so a, a song is that way because you can say, oh, well, it could be this way or it could be that way. There are a million possibilities. No, there aren't a million possibilities in a certain context. So the, the things that sound dead or fake, you know, they fall away very quickly. And then the essence, you know, is there. You just have to have the skill and the sensibility and the empathy or whatever to understand what the truth of the matter is and and only go for that. Wow, I like that. Um, before we get into the whole Bon Jovi stuff, I wanted to kind of talk about um, your unconventional upbringing, you know, how you, you came from Cuba to Florida and then you were in, in poverty with your family and then, you know, all these obstacles that you had, you still achieved your dreams by hard work and and obviously created some of the biggest hits. So how did you become a songwriter? And if you want to talk a little bit about those obstacles, because I think they were just like mind blowing and inspirational. Okay, just to be clear, um, my mom came over to the United States in, in, in the 50s, the early 50s, before the Cuban Revolution. So I was born in Gainesville, Florida in oh. 1953. The revolution happened in 1958. So, um, you know, the, the, the point is that um, my mom, I didn't really learn English anyway until I was in kindergarten, you know, I was five years old because we only spoke Spanish in the house. So I grew up in the Cuban exile community and my mother was a songwriter and a poet. So on the weekends in our little, you know, ghetto, townhouse or whatever it was um, in Liberty City in Miami, um, all the songwriter friends and poets would come over and they'd have like these long parties where they, you know, this is, you know, like they'd be you know, drinking and smoking. I mean, that's when smoking was actually good for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the morning ashtrays, like hundreds of cigarette butts, whatever. And so in our little apartment was a creative hub. So I got, I didn't know people didn't write songs or didn't write poetry. I just thought that was a natural human expression that everyone shared. So even when I was a little kid, I would sit at the piano and start improvising my own melodies. And eventually I, I strung things together. So they were almost like little concertos and my mom would show me off, you know, and I would play them and, you know, all this kind of stuff, not really having had any formal piano lessons or anything like that, all by ear. And she was also by ear. The difference between my mom and me is that she actually played guitar as well. And I never learned how to play guitar. You know, I just, it was just one of those things, you know, I just, I, I never went to stop writing songs to learn how to play guitar. And it was dumb. You know, because certainly almost everybody can do both, but 
I just wanted to keep writing the next song, keep writing the next song, keep writing the next song. So that's why I, I didn't do it. And, um, you know, I think that um, growing up in, a, in, in Liberty City, I don't know if you ever saw um, a, a movie called Midnight. It was set in Miami. And um, well, those were the ghettos that I grew up in. And it was rough. And it was mixed race and, you know, clash of the African-American community, the Haitian community with the Cubans and the Puerto Ricans. And then, of course, there were always, you know, uh, you know, the whole white trash kind of mixed in like, like, uh, you know, into all of it. But all the kids, we all, you know, were friends and we loved each other and we would play on the swings. And that's how the, you know, you know, that's how the world should be. So somebody would always have a transistor radio. In those days, there was one station to listen to in South Florida. One. And, uh, you know, it was a station where you hear Aretha Franklin, Otis Redding, Dionne Warwick, um, Leslie Gore. The Rolling Stones, the Beatles, the Everly Brothers, one after the other, all different styles. So we danced and enjoyed every kind of music. Wow. And so when I went eventually into becoming a professional songwriter and producer, to me, there's style is fluid. And I think that one of the, my features is that I love mixing styles. So when I co-wrote my first biggest hit you know my first big hit with uh paul stanley of kiss a song called i was made for loving you you know it was during the time that i had my group desmond child and rouge and we were doing a kind of blue-eyed soul with latin feeling and motown and girl girl group pop and you know uh singer songwriter you know elton johnish Joni mitchell laura nero all of this was all mixed into a sound. So when I got together with Paul, you know, we, we were heavily influenced by dance music. And, and you know, the time was called disco, right? And, uh, but Motown wasn't really disco, but very influenced by Motown. And so I suggested that we try a song that had like a dance beat and put, you know, heavy metal rock guitars to a dance beat. And actually that little experiment changed the course of pop music. Cause from that moment on came Prince, came Michael Jackson would beat it, came, you know, Madonna and all of this kind of mix of, of dance beats and rock and storytelling and all, you know, Billie Jean and all these things. All of a sudden people saw a way, it wasn't just disco. In 1979, we, there was a cancel culture thing that happened because the gay liberation movement had started, you know, after the Stonewall riots and all the, the gay community would gather at these raves, these big dance halls, and there were DJs and they were playing disco music like uh, Studio 54 and all this kind of stuff. So it was mixed race. We were listening to music that was primarily made by people of, you know, who were of African-American origin and the people that would dance to it were primarily gay. And so suddenly some white dudes 
start saying, well, you know, this stuff, you know, it's like, you know, black and it's gay. We don't like it. And so they, this one kind of DJ, I think he was, he said, he told everybody to bring all their disco records to a stadium or yeah, it was a stadium in Chicago and they burned all the records. So it reminded me of a little bit of the Nazis burning books. So that's happening now where, you know, all of a sudden libraries, all of a sudden everything goes that has anything to do with gender or, or, or racial uh, theories or, you know, history as it really happened. No, everything's being like whitewashed. So at that time, these, these kind of heartland dudes uh, decided rock. That was the only thing that, you know, because it was the opposite of soul. And so I was at the turning point because I was moving from the blue eyed soul thing. And then in 1979, we made uh, two albums and one was like the sun came out, the, you know, bright, happy vocals. Then the, the second album we, we made six months later was influenced by, you know, East Village punk and Ramones and the Clash and all that kind of stuff, but with pop harmonies to it. That album was called Runners in the Night. This is Desmond Child and Rouge. And so with Kiss, I sort of walked into the rock world and Kiss was touring Europe and Bon Jovi was one of the opening acts. And uh, Paul and, and uh, John made friends and, and Paul suggested, hey, why don't you get together with my friend Desmond? And so indeed, I got a call um, from John and, and, and I went to, to write with them at Richie Sambora's parents' house, his little wooden house at the end of the marsh. I don't know, are you familiar with the, the Sopranos? not the Sopranos, the Godfather one, where Clemenza goes and they um, they go to this marsh and then they shoot a guy in the head from behind and he like falls over like this. And then, uh, you know, while Clemenza goes to the side of this marsh and was peeing and whatever, he comes back and he says, uh, leave the keys, take the cannolis. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, imagine that setting and then Richie Sambora's parents' house on the edge of a marsh that like, as far as the eye can see a refinery. And then in the distance, you kind of could see the Statue of Liberty. You know, it was like, wow, you know, very, very kind of the, and the marshes were all brown, looked like end of the end of times, like the, you know, very desolate. And that's where I met them. And I walked in and Richie opened the door I made a left and I could see Richie's bedroom off to the left on the ground floor. And there was a big, you know, post, there were kiss posters and all this. And there was a, a picture of Farrah Fawcett in the one piece red uh, bathing suit, right? Right. You know, on the wall. And um, then I walk into the kitchen and there's John on the wall phone, avocado green, you know, on the wall phone. And he kind of like nods like, hey, you know, like, you know, I'm on the phone. He was probably on the phone with his manager, Doc McGee. And so they were writing and rehearsing in the basement. So I'm led down to the Silence of the Lambs, kind of damp, dark, you know, basement. And there was this Formica table teetering. And there was, I, well, the, the little keyboard they had gotten for me was like half 
on half off. There were uh, guitar amps buzzing. There was a space heater buzzing and, um, you know, like one swinging light bulb or something. It was like really like that. And so eventually John came down and uh, Richie was trying to do his best to, you know, be uh, a host, you know, can I bring you some water? You know, like that kind of thing. And so fine. And John comes down and, uh, you know, chit-chatting a little bit. And then I said, well, guys, I have a title. Um, and I literally had it written down in my back pocket. I, I opened it, said, you give love a bad name. And suddenly John's face came to life. And I saw all those teeth and that billion dollar smile. And I knew that guy's a star. And, uh, you know, and he threw in Shot Through the Heart because he had written a song called Shot Through the Heart before. And so, you know, and, um, you know, Shot Through the Heart and You Too Blame, darling. And then the three of us together said, you give love a bad name. And that was our first, you know, three-way fist in the air, you know, bump. And we never looked back. Wow. That's amazing. And, and you also mentioned in the book too, that you weren't you ideally, you, you guys ideally meant to work for writing for other people at the time too? I didn't know this. I thought we were going to write for them. And then many years later, John confessed that they uh, had met with me to try to get covers of songs that they would be co-writing on to make money to help keep the band going. Like if they could get a big star or somebody to do a pop song, let's say, because they saw me as a pop writer, not really rock. And so um, then we write, You Give Love a Bad Name. And it was like, okay, I think we're gonna keep that one. <laughs> and then uh, never look back when we wrote Living on a Prayer and you know many great songs. Is it true that bad name almost went to Loverboy? There was that. okay. There's been rumors over the years that bad name almost went to Loverboy and they um, almost took it, but then John decided it was going to be a, a major hit and kept it. But it, they never told me that's interesting uh, piece of information. I never knew that because they never, you know, kind of shared with me that they had, you know, made a demo and were pitching it out. You know, yeah, I don't know anything, and so I'm glad that they kept it. <laughs> yeah, obviously, I don't think Loverboy would have been able to. All, all respect to Loverboy, obviously, but I don't think they would have been able to make it as big of a hit as obviously Bon Jovi did. Um, with Bad Name, real quick, too, you mentioned in the book about how management, you know, the, the record company, they wanted to just pay you out and not give you any kind of song credit on the uh on the song could you talk a little bit about that because i thought that was like well my my manager got a call uh from john's manager and he said hey you know um we're thinking about this and you know like how about it if we buy buy desmond out 35 grand like that was going to be enticing to me i already you know written you know i was made for loving you way more money than that was coming in right and so i wasn't that broke and, um, you know, and, you know, my manager brought it to me and I, I got so mad because it was a buyout where my name wouldn't be on the song. I would get no credit or royalties or anything forever, just complete buyout. I never heard of such a thing. 
And I think, you know, you know, the manager, you know, um, probably everybody realized that what they had, they, they struck gold and they were trying to kind of um, suddenly push me out of it. And I said, absolutely not. And in fact, you know, I, I called John and I, and, and I said, you know what, I got, we got this crazy offer and I'm telling you, if you persist with this, you'll never see me again. And to his credit, he went back and told him to, you know, like knock it off. Yeah. And ever since then, we've always split the songs equally. That's amazing. And, and, you know, it's one of those things, you know, the manager, to his credit, was trying to make the best deal he could for his band. Right. Because, of course, remember that he would get commission on, you know, the profit. So yeah. there was always a self-interest there. But you can't, you know, you can't blame people for trying to make it better for themselves, you know, but at the same time, like in in Nashville, they have a word, uh, they have a, a, a saying called, say a word, get a third. Okay. So if you're the guy that went out for the Starbucks and then came back and the song was written, you're still a third writer. Yeah. And that's, you know, honor among thieves, I guess, you know, so, um, it, it was one of those things that I always insisted on. Like, you know, if it's five writers, then five way, whatever. Um, right. And so that's one thing that I've really uh, stuck with because if people start nickel and diming, well, how many words did you come up with? And start counting up the words in the song and, you know, how many notes did you come up with? I mean, that's a quick way to end a creative relationship that could be very, very profitable. And yep. like I said, to John's credit, you know, he told him to knock it off and it was, it was all good after yeah. that. Yeah. I was just, I was just like amazed by that story, but like you said, you know, John made it right. And then you also kind of understand where, you know, Doc was coming from too, you know, with the profit in and trying to make his band more money, blah, blah, blah. And brings me to another point too. It was you, a different kind of music business than I was used to. Let's just put it that way. Were you familiar? So obviously, you know, Slippery was either the make it or break it album for the band. Were you kind of before working with John Ritchie? Were you kind of familiar with the debut and seven eight hundred albums? No, no. no. Okay. I, I think that they played me Runaway that first day, so I could familiarize myself with you know their most recent success and the style of the band okay. you know, had a keyboardist in the band. So that changed things because, I mean, there was one point where in Canada, if you wanted to get on rock radio, there couldn't be one note from a piano, keyboard, synth, anything it had to be just guitar. So we would do songs just mixed for Canada where we pull out, not Bon Jovi, but with other bands, we pull out all special effects, synths, everything out, just rock guitars and hope, you know, that they would go go with it. Uh, isn't that a strange thing? You know, like keyboards weren't cool. I know. And, and I think that's what kind of added to the band's success so much is because they kind of differentiated themselves from other rock bands at the time with, you know, having David as the keyboardist and, added a, a bigger and better sound i think to you know like bad mess and which we'll get into here in a second you know with that da -da -da -da, you know that intro right. you know, it added a magic touch to a lot of their songs um 
But with prayer, um, obviously, you know, the story about, you know, John didn't want to put out living on a prayer on the album. And were you there with that when that kind of when Richie kind of convinced John, hey, this is going to be a massive hit. Uh, it wasn't Richie. It was me and Richie got on our hands and knees, half joking, but half serious to please cut the song. You know, at least cut it. Let's see how it turns out. But it, it, that wasn't John's vision at the time. He wanted to be, do a really hard rock record. And that song was sensitive and had like a moody verse. And, you know, it was kind of, it wasn't all about, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know? It was, it, it, and that's kind of the themes that were going through, you know, bands like Motley Crue and, you know, Girls, 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 Van Halen, everything was just like that. They weren't really writing songs that were story songs in that same same kind of sensitive way. And so then after Living on a Prayer, of course, even Aerosmith, uh, you know, they did Janie's Got a Gun, where they told a story that was, you know, very touching. And, and so I think that we changed the course of pop music with that, you know, especially Living on a Prayer. Absolutely. You know, it's obviously it stood the test of time. I mean, it just like hit one billion views on our, you know, on uh, YouTube and Spotify and all that. I mean, that's got to be a huge. Yeah. And the Spotify numbers didn't even start counting till like seven or eight years ago. So imagine all the plays that we had before that, you know, now and now it's a billion just in seven years. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm very proud of that. And um you know, I don't think there are a lot of songs that have reached a billion, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and even Maybe like, the weekend has that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm sure he does. <laughs> you know, and even live, and you know, not that it matters, but I've been to you know 63 Bon Jovi shows, and I can tell you every single time that I've seen Living on a Prayer live, it always just gives you goosebumps because every single person in that arena stadium is singing their hearts out and it's just it's it's phenomenal you know and it's always the very last song before lights up get out of here yeah because john figured out that you know no one would leave until they heard that song yeah so you see even if they went overtime like it's like midnight already in an arena which is overtime you know you see people there with their kids asleep you know on their shoulders wearing of course the headphone thing you know to block the sound and they're like standing there and they're not leaving until they hear living on a prayer exactly and the irony is you can't even hear the band playing because people are screaming it so loud it's like obliterates the, the biggest sound system you don't even hear the band singing it you know or playing it i think that's so cool and so I, I think there was one of, I, I forget who had the quote. Um, I think maybe, it, I, mean, I, I think maybe it was Bill O'Coin or somebody like that. I Forgive me that I'm misquoting, but they say, when you go to see whether to sign a band, you don't watch the band, you watch the crowd. Because then you, then you know whether you've got something or not as nice as the band might be or handsome or great songs or whatever if the if the people in that room aren't going crazy you walk away you don't sign them yeah that's that's true because at, at the end of the day it's the fans that make 
the band money and 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 so forth you know um now going into new jersey obviously no slipper became this massive album and, and everything and um you went in to write a few, you know, Bad Medicine, Borny Be My Baby, uh, Wild Is The Wind, and Blood On Blood. I think those are the, the four that were released on the album uh, that you co-wrote. Um, so when you went to the studio, I think Bad Medicine was the first one that you wrote with them, correct? For New Jersey? For New Jersey, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, Slippery was before then. I had right. four songs on that record. Uh, I think the first one, I think they had started the song already and they they had a you know basic thing and but it was very linear so then i i said well what about a b section you know that changes key and so that's what you get when you fall in love you know all of that and uh you know john loved it and 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 it all came together and of course you know i contributed on the on the lyrics when we when it, when it finally came time you know, to hone down on the all of the alliteration and all of that in that song. Right. So so when you went in to write Bad Medicine, knowing that you, obviously the band wanted to prove they weren't just one hit wonders, quote unquote. They wanted to prove that they could still make another successful album and still be literally the, the world's biggest band. And so when you went in to start writing, what what was in your head to kind of make, make it better, or not better, but even bigger than Bad Name and Prayer and... I, wasn't, I don't think about those kinds of things. If you think about that, that's like trying to think about riding a bike. And then, you, you know, you, all of a sudden you go, you can't, you can't ride the bike. If okay. I start thinking about riding a hit, then nothing comes to my head because okay. it's impossible because that's not the process. Okay. The process is much deeper. You know, we tell stories, we have grooves, we have things. And if you start thinking about the outcome, then it shuts down the creativity. I it like shuts that. down the, the, the true process of telling a story. And you can't be judging every word. Is, is that a hit word? You know, yeah. I mean, it's just like, that's a way to go mad. Sure. And, and, it's, and, and what happens is some artists try to repeat their success. So they have sound alike songs that come up and that's nobody wants that. They want to see an artist keep progressing and coming up with new things and, and journey with them down their creative road. Right. It, it, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it, it takes the authenticity out of a song if you're just trying to find another hit and you know it's not it's not authentic. Like what is that? Most of the hits that are, I mean, back in the day, not today, but back in the day. You could wait two years before that first single comes out from when you wrote it and recorded it. Because, you know, you had to get on the record company schedule. And then they keep saying, well, why don't we, you know, now it's like the spring. And they say, well, let's wait till the fall. Then you get to the fall and they say, well, you know, all these other records are coming in. Maybe we should wait till January. And now you've lost a year. That's yeah. how it was then. So if you're going to judge, what a hit is and base your own creativity on what a current hit is, that song could be two years old. That's not, that's not fresh creativity. That's, you know, yesterday's bagel, you know, that's not true. good today. Bagels, you know, not, you know, yesterday's bagel is no good today, no matter what you do to it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's old. And so that's the whole thing with, um, 
you know, thinking about, you know, writing a hit. And record companies and A&R guys probably, you know, you know, they, the, the record company presidents would bring all those A&R guys and beat them up and say, look at that other label. They have a hit with Michael Jackson. You know, what are we going to do? You know, make something sound like that. Find an artist that can, you know, dance like that, that can look like that, you know, because, you know, we got to make our numbers work and all this kind of stuff. Then those poor A&R guys, they go to the acts and say, well, you know, you think maybe you could write something more like Billie Jean or something uh, like maybe sort of like that. And that's a sure way to end somebody, somebody's career. Yeah. And that's not fair to them. Well, there's it's not not fair or, or fair. It's just yeah. what it is. It's like it depends on who you're dealing with. There were, you know, some heads heads of companies like Bob Krasnow who gave their artists a lot of rope, you know, and said, you know, you you do what you do best, like Ten Thousand Maniacs or Tracy Chapman, you know, people that were were on Electra, you know, where that was considered kind of like the, you know the art artsy label and you know then there were other labels you know that um people were just put into a machine it's like are you kidding me that whitney houston's killing it we need somebody that can sound like that wait a second what about that girl she's 16 mariah carey she could sound like whitney let's who's who's making whitney's records who wrote that song that Whitney sang? Let's get her, them to write for, for Mariah Carey. And, and then you all, all of a sudden you have, you know, Arista competing with, you know, Columbia or, or Epic, you know, with who's going to come out with that big voice and, and, and do it the best. You know, no one could compete with Whitney Houston, but Mariah Carey, is informidable she co-wrote like dozens of number one records herself mm -hmm. and so you know it's like it was unfair to mariah to be like squeezed into whitney's market because she was you know formidable as herself so that's the whole thing it's like these guys are under a lot of pressure and if they don't deliver a hit act guess what they're not going to be in the music business. They're going to have to go back to their, you know, their dad's law firm and be a paralegal and shuffle papers around until they can come up with another job somewhere else. Yeah. Imagine the pressure they're under and their bonuses and their everything is based on the numbers. And so then they would they then one of the things that really killed, you know, creativity was testing. So they, they'd have these, you know, promoter guys go to a radio station and say, I'll give you, you know, two grand to play this one song in the middle of the night in Iowa. And if the phones light up, then we're going to go with it. If they don't light up, we're dropping the act. I mean, think about that. Yeah. So, and it's like that particular night might have been like a, holiday or something where people weren't even listening to the radio 
or a, a game or, or something was going on where they weren't even listening to music. So the phones may not have lit up and somebody's career just went down the tubes after they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars developing them. That wow. testing thing, sometimes it was right on, but sometimes they were dead wrong That's because crazy. it takes repeated listening to make a hit. So either that happens naturally or you pay to have the repeated listening enough for it to then finally take. Right. It, 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 it's like like songs that kind of grow on you too. I think as a as a listener, as a fan, you know, I think sometimes too, when we first listen to an album, you know, we, we find our favorites, listen to those for a while. And there's other songs that just, it takes time for those songs to kind of resonate with you and to kind of grow on you. You know what I'm saying? That's what I'm saying repeated listening so right. when you go to see the show then you know when the chorus comes and you know how to sing it hold on just one second okay absolutely oh hold on oh. need to moisturize my throat take your time take your time okay ready Okay. Um, so back into, you know, New Jersey. Um, what was it like being in the studio again with the guys writing another album? And obviously, you know, you also did Blood on Blood, Wild is the Wind, which Wild is the Wind is just, that's a gem. I know Diane Warren also co-wrote that song too. And you talk about that in the book. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that story, because that's a huge diehard fan favorite, that song. Well, to confess, I was at that time living in this kind of culty commune in Virginia, near Charlottesville, Virginia. And Diane Warren actually came there and uh, to and stayed at a hotel, whatever. And we I had this little writing room that had some uh, records, like LPs. And there was one by, um, oh my God, Nina Simone. And the name of the of the album, I just like my eyes just fell on it said, Wild is the Wind. And so I said, okay, let's write a song called Wild is the Wind. And so we started it. And then we went to New Jersey together to present it to John and Richie and, and John loved the title. And uh, we went and co-wrote that song together. And, you know, Diane really didn't fit into you know, the world of Bon Jovi, you know, she's, she's, first of all, she's very hesitant to co-write to begin with, very rarely co-writes. And um, she's also at that time, like, like a big, like, you know, kind of bratty 14 year old, you know, she, she's very funny. Uh, you know, her humor could be very, um, you know, off color. And, um, she was so like herself and John was like, I don't know, you know, this isn't, I don't, this isn't cool, you know? So, um, you know, because I love Diane and I knew that we could write great things for them because I didn't see her. I mean, I just looked at her talent. I wasn't kind of judging like whether she gonna fit into the, first of all, she was a woman and she wasn't feminine. And it didn't, if you're going to be a woman, then you got better look like, you know, Heather Locklear, you know, no, 
you know, she's very androgynous and um, it didn't fit the Bon Jovi mold. But hey, ne neither did I at that time. You know, I was like wearing like almost looked like a Mormon, you know, Bible peddler, you know, kind of thing, you know, with a little, you know, shirt and, you know, well, I look more then like I look now, you know, the shaved head, you know, it was like kind of crazy. And so, um, you know, we were there writing and she got some coffee or something and took it into the bathroom, the guest bathroom, very fancy house, you know, the, the big house, right? And they had a powder room with really fancy towels and she spilt the coffee and she took one of these fancy like embroidered like towels and wiped the floor with it and, you know, put it back, you know, and then, you know, John went in there and saw that and he was so pissed, you know, it was like, oh my God, you know, this girl, she's such a klutz. You know, she always spills a drink, you know, she's so, uh, she's like that, you know, you could be at a restaurant before you know it, there's a glass spilt and she always would come with a bird and the bird would be on the table pecking at everybody's food. I mean, it, like it's nutty, you know, she's much more sophisticated now, you know, that she's the Oscar, you know, writer, you know, the, you know, kind of had, she's had, I think 14 Oscar nominations hasn't won yet, but they gave her a lifetime achievement Oscar last year, maybe, you know, to shut her up, you know? So, so anyway, I love Diane, absolutely love her, but she rubbed John the wrong way, especially when John saw those, you know, like probably like $200, you know, hand towels, you know, like all messed up, right? <laughs> That's funny. But did he eventually warm up to her once you guys got right into Wild as the Wind? I mean, did he? No, no, no. He never oh. warmed up to her. No, no. You know, she got kicked, you shit canned out of, out of, you know, Rumson, New Jersey so fast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but we did come up with a great song. You yeah. know, that's one of the special songs, you know. And, yeah. uh, you know, We've written really cool songs together, like We All Sleep Alone, which is the song because I was producing Cher at the same time. So I asked John, do you think, you know, because he didn't want to cut it. He said, ah, that's a chick song. I'm not, I don't want to sing that We All Sleep Alone. So, you know, because it was moody and kind of like, and so I said, well, can I give it to Cher? He said, yeah, yeah, like whatever. So, but maybe that went along with their former plan of getting people to cut their songs. So, of course, that's how Richie met Cher. Okay. And then they were together for a long time. And so um, so me and Richie and, and John, we co-produced uh, We All Sleep Alone. And they also played, uh, we co-produced and they played uh, a rock version of Bang Bang. You shot me down, bang, bang. You know, so, you know, the original song was dun, 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 dun. it was so like, like gypsies, tramps and thieves kind of like, maybe it wasn't quite so much like that. It was like moody. And she was like 16 when she sang it originally by produced by Sonny Bono. So the song was only two minutes long. So I had to go to Palm Springs and he was the mayor of Palm Springs and ask him to write another additional verse, which he did for me. I, I sat there while he wrote it. 
you know, and um, I didn't contribute. I just made him do it. And uh, we cut the song and it, it has like most amazing arrangement, you know, listen to the bang, bang. Um, I think, it, I mean, was that record called Heart of Stone? I can't remember. Heart, Heart of Stone, yeah. Oh my God, it's such a brilliant version, it, you know. Phenomenal, I, I really- And so it. that song was the thing that sparked the flame with uh, Richie and Cher. Yeah, they were together two years, I think. Or something, something like that, yeah. I and once went to write with Richie for his solo record and um, she was in New Jersey. He had this big house and she had taken over the house. So she had all his living room furniture packed up and sent to storage. And she put her entire gym in, you know, like you would in a gym with all these machines, like all in a row, you know, and turned his living room into her gym. Oh my God. And then in the kitchen, she had this amazing uh, health food vegan chef that was making like cornbread and like, like uh, chili, like this vegetarian chili. And then she every day she had somebody redo her nails. Like a lady would come and she, you know, had these long acrylic nails. She was doing the nails and then the chef was cooking. And then, you know, it was like a madhouse with assistants coming in, asking her questions. And Richie was like, you know, he, he was just like, what have they done to my house? Right. <laughs> what has she done to my house? So then we wrote in this tiny little side bedroom upstairs. We wrote Father Time. Uh, you know, you know, Father Time. I mean, it's most beautiful, almost Beatlesque song. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was funny because I had produced Cher like the year before. So it was like she couldn't get away from me either, you know, because she wasn't that happy with me because I was so strong with her in the, in, you know, very strict in the studio, because I only got her for very short periods of time, because her schedule was so busy. So I put her feet to the fire right when she walked in. And that was her not her style. Yeah. You know, she, you know, her assistant to make her tea with the honey, and with the everything just so and I was like, No, 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 you got got to start singing right now. Yeah. So I was pretty, I, I think I was maybe unnecessarily tough with her. Oh, you got to hit the ground running too. What? You got to hit the ground running too, you know, especially if, if time is- I, I was on such a strict deadline and, and it was for her own good because she had three movies coming out, Moonstruck, uh, you know, Witness or, you know, all these songs. I mean, all these movies. And so there was a huge publicity uh, promotion thing on all these movies and i think she won the oscar for um moonstruck right and uh that was the you know the the first time hollywood really acknowledged her as a real actor and um so i wanted to make sure that the album was being promoted through all of this and it was and it did and she was a hit and all of a sudden what was a vegas act that nobody cared about became like the rock diva and she, you know, and then Diane, I brought Diane into it. Diane played her uh, Turn Back Time. I helped uh, Diane and her co-producer Guy Roche um, to 
get the track to get not the track but the, all the background vocals together so i sang that with maria vidal and robin beck and kind of arranged them you know can't you know turn back time find a way you can hear my voice in there <laughs> oh really uh, yeah because i sang with with them and we like quadruple tracked it and it was really great Oh, I never knew. I, I knew you covered. I never knew that you were on the the vocal track of the back. Well, of the I, I arranged it and sang sang on it. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, the shared days were really fantastic. I worked on two of her records. Yeah, she's, and, she's um, just like Jesse James was one of them, and um, you know, with Bon Jovi, um, Bon Jovi had a huge influence because I got asked to produce Alice Cooper, who had, you know, had been you know, not really selling records for a long time. I and mean, the record before the one I worked on sold 15,000 records. The record I made, Trash, sold four and a half million records. Trash is a phenomenal record. You know, Poison. I, I got all of my friends, including Bon Jovi, to play and sing and co-write for that record. It was a, like a guest album Joan Jett, Kip Winger, Kane Roberts, um, you know, it, it was the Aerosmith, they were on it as well. So that helped to bring all of the fans from all of those other groups focused back on Alice Cooper. And, you know, to this day, he can't do a show without Poison. And uh, right now he's doing um, a Bed of Nails as well. And last year, I they um, we did an evening of my music at the Parthenon in Greece, in Athens, Greece, called Desmond Child Rocks the Parthenon. And Which I love, I love he's, that. He's one of the um, guest artists. He comes out singing Poison. And this is a kind of very holy kind of amphitheater. It's a 2000 year old Roman amphitheater, you know, that a Roman built in Athens. And the Parthenon of course is 2,500 years old. And um, you, they have very strict rules. You're not supposed to have a phone out. You can't, you know, you're not supposed to, you know, film anything. And, you know, when Alice Cooper came out, the minister of culture, who's very strict, was caught on camera filming Alice Cooper with her phone. <laughs> and mouthing the words to poison. You know, the one that's like so strict that invented all these rules. Herself. <laughs> and also got everybody to light up their phones, like the flashlight thing. And uh, for the song that I wrote uh, with Zed and Rock Mafia called Beautiful Now, and it goes, let's live tonight like fireflies and one by one light up the sky. And um, it just was like all the phones lit up. Never had happened. In 2000 years, that never happened. But of course, cell phones hadn't existed in not more than like 20 years. Yeah, now they do. How long has the iPhone been with a flashlight in it? How long is that? Like uh, 10 years, 2013, they started with the flashlight. So 10, yeah, 10 years. Yeah, it, it hasn't happened in like 2000 years or even 10 years. <laughs> and so that was very exciting uh, with Alice Cooper. And um, you know he's he's just the best person. Yeah. I just him. And you, you, the, the album we made. The reason I bring it up 
because it had a lot of the Bon Jovi, bon Jovi anthemic sound that we had been developing. You know, I kind of brought in, you know, those kind of lifting chords and modulations and, um, you know, like that's our uh, House of Fire that we wrote with Joan Jett. House of Fire, House of Fire. That was supposed to be for Joan. Joan and I had started the song and then we I finished it with Alice and uh, it turned out so good. It, so, it, uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm just saying, I'm just reminiscing now. And, and even Bon Jovi's demo, House of Fire, was, obviously I know they weren't ever going to put that on New Jersey, but even their demo, that was really good. And you, you, you mentioned Joan Jett, too, who I'm a huge fan of. And the song, I Hate Myself for Loving You, you originally brought that to John, right? And it was like, I, I hate myself because I can't get laid. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, that's wrong. Completely. Okay. I wrote the song, I wrote the song with Joan Jett. The very first day I met her, we wrote that song. Another song where I had a, a, a you know, one of those opposite titles in my back pocket. You give love a bad name. I hate myself for loving you. You know, heavens on fire. You know, all of that tension of opposites, right? Right. And Joan didn't want to sing a song that had the word love in it because she was like famous for I love rock and roll, which she didn't write, right? This I think this British pop guy had written that song and so um you know i wrote that with with joan and i produced it and i played john you know the mix of i hate myself for loving you and he like looked at me and he said fuck you and just walked away <laughs> you don't like it i think he liked it oh. but it was like, why are you giving her that hook you know he's like I, you know, and it was, I think he did say something like that. And I said, well, I actually co-wrote it with her. It's not like I could have like saved it. It like, you know, came out in the session. Right. Right. But it was, it was cute. The way he said like, fuck you. And he like walked away. <laughs> I think Joe was the perfect one to, uh, to record that though. But, you know, I'm so glad you kind of clarified that story because the internet has so much misleading information anymore. And I always thought that was the story that you originally brought it to John and John didn't like it. And, and then you gave it. To oh him. no, it was completely yeah. done. You know, he, he oh. liked it too much. Right. You know, that's yeah. what, you know, and yeah. uh, you know, then this was like during New Jersey, it was like, he was like, okay, come on, we got to find hooks. You know, yeah. so it was like during that, you know, one of those processes. Yeah. I would have loved to hear a, a demo of them recording that though. That would have been amazing. But um, yeah, I just want to ask you a few more questions and I'll let you go here. Um, but do, what's your recollection of Hearts Breaking Even on the These Days album? I don't have a recollection. Oh. Oh, see, that's I think that song is so underrated in the band's career. And you obviously you co-wrote it. And uh, that, you know, the line you know, I was like, I did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I just even. Yeah. yeah, that's my that favorite. Was, that was John's title for sure. And um, I, <laughs> I really have no recollection of writing. I remember when we wrote um, Keep Keep the Faith. Yeah, like it was a very vivid writing session. Uh, but I don't remember that other one. I, yeah, I, I should brush up and like learn my own music, right? Yeah. That's 
besides memory, which we're going to get into in a second, Hearts Breaking Even is my absolute favorite one that you've written with John. And, you know, just the line, your broken hearts can't call the cops. Yeah, it's the perfect crime. I don't know if I'm ringing any bells yet to you. What, is it? what does it say that again? It's, uh, I'll, I'll read the whole, the whole verse here. Um, go on, get on with your life. Yeah, I'll, I'll get on with mine. Broken hearts can't call the cops. Yeah, it's the perfect crime. Twisting and turning the night keeps me yearning. I'm burning alive. I'm paying the price again, but I'll see the light again. I just think that 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 the whole part of that song right before the final chorus was just phenomenal. I just love that those lines. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you've written tons of songs, so I don't blame Can't you. Can't call cops on a broken heart. That's definitely John. Can't that John Yeah, okay. he would have he come up with that. Yeah, that, that's know. a huge fan favorite. That's very Jersey, right? Can't call the cops, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on a broken heart. Yeah, but it's a phenomenal song. It's, but my other one that is my, this is my absolute favorite song of all time, uh, You Want to Make a Memory, um, that you wrote with John back in 07. Um, yeah. What was what was it? Uh, um, and I know at that uh, the, the, the I can I can't say the word, but the concert that you did last year, you dedicated that to your family. To yeah. played it during it was the encore, right? If I remember correctly. Yes. Yeah, I just played it by myself at the piano. Yeah, uh, which I thought was. Really I'm good. not a great pianist, but I really practiced it, and I had come up with like a like an alternate melody, you know, to the one that John sang. Um, okay. Well, I made it more kind of R&B, you know? Okay. And, um, you know, I remember John and I wrote that at my offices in at Destin Entertainment on Sunset Boulevard. Uh, I had offices there for a few years and it was upstairs and overlooking the back parking lot. And, um, you know, we were waiting for Richie, you know, to show up. He was supposed to join us for that session. He didn't show up. So John and I basically wrote the song and Richie joined the song uh, in the studio, you know, with his uh, musical contributions. Wow. And so how long did it take to write Make a Memory? Well, we wrote in a couple hours, you know, it was like, it was one of those songs that just like a real flow, you know, it's just like, yeah, you know, it, and it's another story song, you know. Mm -hmm. And it, it's so uh, different. You know, the guy runs into his, uh, you know, just they meets his like high school sweetheart. They all had, they'd gone separate ways. And he goes, hey, you want to make a memory like, you know, like the hotel rooms upstairs, like, and she's, you know, you know, grabbing her keys, like on her way out, you know, like she's not going to do it. Looking for a reason not to leave, though. You know, yeah, yeah, looking for a reason not to leave, like. Well, maybe for old time's sake, but you know, it's a very clever song because there's that sexual tension, but um, you know, you don't know whether they closed or not. Exactly, kind of leaves, leaves that mystery. And, you know, and just the song overall, it, it was so different to what the band has has ever done, you know, especially like that build up, you know, it starts with the boom, 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 boom. And then as you get past the, the second or the first chorus, you get into this, the other verse. Then the second chorus is when it starts to really build. And, you know, just and then the, you know, you get the guitar solo and then you get that outro in the, the outro, you know, with Richard, you know, singing in the background and, you know, just that big um, mu musical. Yeah, I think that song is kind of underrated, you know, it's oh, like severely severely you know, it's really one of the best songs that you know i've co 
collaborated on with John for sure. Yeah. And I'm very attached to the song because it, in my world, I mean, the way I was feeling, it was kind of like um, about me and John because we'd always like, my my family would visit him and you know in their house in um east hampton and there's a big porch and everyone all the kids would be asleep all the spouses would be already in bed and john and i would sit out there two in the morning and just reminisce you know uh you know sipping wine killing time trying to solve life's mysteries oh my and god that's really to me that's about us you know so it's like blood on blood, you know, that that song to me was about me and Richie and John, the trio. And so, you know, it has a whole different kind of storyline, almost like. Um, what's that movie like the deer hunter or something like it's like guys that come back from war or something, but they these are the guys that, you know, he ran with in high school or something and it's like the trio. But for me, it's sentimental because it's really about the adventure that we took you know the three of us when we collaborated you know of course john and richie were dynamite as collaborators with each other but i think i brought a little something else to the to the trio and to create the trio and i'm very sentimental about that absolutely the, the um the line i dug up this old photograph look at all that hair we had is it was it pretty much like your guys' memories together in the 80s yeah exactly look at all that hair we had you know it's like um it, it's it, that was john's line you know uh you know like look at all that hair we had because at that point he had cut his hair and it was more like you know like like a bouffant going back kind of thing yeah. but you know he was famous for his hair i mean he still has gorgeous hair you know yeah. it's full and it's like how does he do it and um you know, it was like, you know, he's known like as a hair band. So there was a kind of tip of the hat to those times when everyone were, were wearing mullets, teased up mullets, like like the court of Louis the 15th. Wow. Those were, that was the first mullet, you know, back yeah. in, the, you know, in the 1700s or whatever. You know, it's the same exact hairdo. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. My, my my last question to you is um, keeping up with, well, I shouldn't say keeping up with, but how do you think it's progressed right with John and Richie, you know, from obviously the last song that you wrote with them was Army of One on the What About Now album, but from, you know, 86 all the way to 2013, you've written on different albums, uh, I think just except Crush, right? I think you did, didn't you co-write one song for Crush, but didn't make the album? I'm or, not sure. I don't remember. Yeah, but any, anyway, you know, there were a lot of songs. I think all the songs made it onto that big compilation. Um, oh, that's right. The box at uh, 100 million bungee. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So all these songs, I don't know. I think there was even the original demo of We All Sleep Alone might have made it onto that. I'm not sure. They it did. Uh, unfortunately, his, I wish his, own, his own version, you know, the demo maybe got lost or whatever was fantastic. Right. We All Sleep Alone. Yeah, I, I think it's somewhere on YouTube, to be honest. I think it's on YouTube that oh, really I think so. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to look for it. Um, but how has it, you know, writing with John for the first time in 86 and then obviously with 2013 with Army of One, what was it like to 
how has that progressed for you? Like, can you go, like go into the studio now together and just like, okay, I know what I know what John's focus, I know what he likes, I, and he knows what you like. You guys just hit the ground running essentially. Well, you know, it always stems from a conversation. You know, the songs grow out of something; they're not out of nothing. And then we get on a roll, and then it's like ideas are 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 flowing. You know, and and we're in the moment we're in a special sacred place and when we're writing you know it's like there's nothing else just that moment just us and the song and that's one of the precious things and and really when i look back i'm so grateful and and that i've had that in my life you know it's kind of like some people go through their life and they've never fallen in love you know they go through life and just didn't happen for them. Well, for me, it happens every time I write a song, you know, especially with somebody like John and with Richie. It's like being in love again. It's like that adrenaline, that feeling of, you know, passion and, you know, it's all there. And I've been so lucky. I've had that feeling so many times and reciprocated, you know, and, uh, I'm just just the luckiest guy in the world, especially the day that I met John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora. I mean, that, and, and, you know, and you know, you say it with bad name, it kind of opened a lot more doors for you too. That were you know, like some people weren't returning your calls and stuff, and then bad name came out, and all of a sudden you started getting all these different phone calls, and people wanted to work with you. I just opened this entire roadway for you, and I think that's phenomenal. Well, that's what a hit can do. Yeah, but uh, then you have to know what to do with it. You know, because a lot of people have hits and everybody calls them, they become like the it person for that year or whatever, and then they don't have any more hits. Yeah. But, you know, but I always made sure I delivered every time. Yeah, because I think you, you've you always had a number one each decade, correct? That's right. 170s, six decades, I believe. Yeah, six. So, so it's 70s with, I hate myself. I, no, I... I'm I was made for loving you and then came you know um all the songs that was 70s 80s all the songs in the 80s Bon Jovi Aerosmith all of that the 90s um came um Ricky Martin live and love you the loca at the end of the 90s and and you know I had Billy Myers before we kissed the rain and and stuff and then um the in the 2000s you know, continued with Ricky Martin with She Bangs and then um, did so songs for Kelly Clarkson and um, uh, Carrie Underwood. I had a number one with her, Inside Your Heaven, that I produced. I didn't write that one, but I produced it. And then uh, 2010, I had um, um, Waking Up in Vegas with, with Katy Perry. Then we go into uh the next set is uh maybe beautiful now with zed and then the next set is ava max um kings and queens which i love and i didn't realize you co-wrote that i've loved that song since it came out i didn't know you co-wrote that until like two days ago i'm like what i love that song and it's like and i think that's a song that kind of proves that you you've progressed as a songwriter and kind of, you know, when you're going in, you're saying authentic to yourself, but you're also keeping up with what's current out there. And I just, I love that Kings and Queens song, you know? 
I think it's phenomenal. Yeah. So I'm, I'm good till 2030. So I don't need to have a number one till then. Yeah. Yeah. But it'd be nice to, but I don't, you know, to, to keep my record, you know, all I need is one in 2030 and then I'll be set, you know, yeah. with like what, seven decades of number seven one. Hits. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, and your music is always going to be timeless too, you know? So I hope so. It will be, especially. Uh, it seems like the the songs have a life of their own, mm -hmm. and in some cases, people know the songs. They don't even know who sang it. Like all around the world, they know the song, but you might say the name of the artist, and they're looking at you like they don't know. They know, love it, to know the song. It, so it, the songs, you know, can eclipse the original performer. Yeah, I, I get I go through all the time because I'm such a you know diehard Bon Jovi fan and people are like I don't know a single Bon Jovi song. I was like, have you heard "Living on a Prayer"? Oh, they do that song. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They cover that song. Yeah, they cover yeah. it. Yeah. They, they play that song. Yeah. <laughs> so, but anyway, you know, not only just for coming on the podcast, I also want to thank you for all these songs that you've you've wrote that have impacted my life and have meant so much to me over the years. And so I really want to thank you for that, you know, because, you know, uh -huh. your music is just it, it, it's an incredible thing and it's universal. And I think it's the strongest connection to humanity that we have, you know, because you write a song, you feel this way. And then I, I hear the song for the first time and I think mm -hmm. it's my own because I connect to it so much. You know, that's the beautiful thing about music is how we connect to it. So well, that's really nice of you to say. And um it's so great to see someone young like you have so much energy and enthusiasm for the music that we made when we were your age. Absolutely. Um, so your book, so people know where to get it. Obviously, it's on, uh, you can pre-order on Amazon. Let's show the, I just, I love that cover too, and the title. And if you have a second, how did you come up with the title? Big Songs. Well, Living on a Prayer was easy. Right. Then uh, Big Songs, Big Life, because I, you know, says living on a prayer because I have lived on a prayer, but you know, that's the biggest song I've ever collaborated on. So that explains the big songs. And then the big life is, you know, all of this, you know, crazy shit that happened. Yeah. And um, I, I think it's appropriate. You know, the, my publishers were like trying to get me to change the title to uh, you know, I think there was one suggestion they were really like strong on it. They wanted blood, sweat and hits because that was a quote of Alice Cooper about me. You know, right. oh, Desmond Child, he's all blood, sweat and hits. And, <laughs> um, you know, I even made a cover that had that on it. It just didn't have the power that does, this does. Yeah. I, so I, I go on my Instagram, Desmond.child, join it, comment, stick with me. And uh, there's a link to the Talk Shop Live. If you do, if you buy it that way, uh, before it comes out, you'll get an autograph copy. So it'd be great to get a bunch of like pre-orders because all the pre-orders add up to your first week. So if if that that can happen, that would be great because then maybe I'll get on the New York Times bestseller list. Which I think, and just to hype the book up one more time, and I'm not just saying this because you're on, it is truly a phenomenal, all 400 pages, and it's it's such an in-depth uh, story about all these artists that you've worked with, and it's very revealing, and, and I can tell you didn't hold back at all, 
And on top of that, you also throw in a bunch of photos in there that's never like there's some Bon Jovi photos that I've never seen before. And I'm a right. encyclopedia. And I was like, oh, like my favorite one is the one uh, in 2012 where you probably ran for What About Now? And John's just, you're at a desk and John's sitting in front of you and you can tell he's concentrating on what right. you're writing. Just so many phenomenal photos in there. And I, it is worth every penny, I think. It really is. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, uh, you know, for anyone who is a fan of Bon Jovi, you know, I think that they should be my fans, too. Absolutely. And follow me because I have lots of content and I even have a skin line I'm coming out with, you know, so that anybody could look like this when they're getting ready <laughs> to be 70 years old. <laughs> That's great. Oh, by the way, I just got this whole Celtic tattoo thing in uh, Northern Black in the north of England, wow. uh, go on Instagram, look at Northern Black. And this guy's a genius, you know, Peter Madsen. It's like, wow, you know, wow. it's it's like there's the, the bear, the raven on my back, there's a wing, and then the god, you know, it's like I have like this god mask. And I mean, I, I went all the way. Like, I didn't even know it was going to go that far with it, you know? Yeah. It was like, well, maybe a little bit on my hand before I knew it. It was like, what? But I love it. I really do love it. And because I really got into Vikings and The Last Kingdom. Did you ever watch The Last Kingdom? No, I, I Someone just recommended that to me the other day, and I put it on my to-watch list. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. But I went to the castle that they're always talking about in that show. Bamber, okay. You know, and... It's north of, of Newcastle, and it's like Viking territory. Wow. So I'm just like so into it. And so it's like, you know, it's like, it's a fantasy. It's a fun fantasy. But, you know, at my age, you know, at least I know one thing. This tattoo will never fade. Nope. <laughs> it, it never will turn into like one of those sailor blobs, you know, that people got when they were 19 and then now they're 80. You know, it's like, this is fresh, man. It'll yeah. never fade. It'll only last on you. It's, it's sort of like the ink nowadays is, you know, it, it stays with you a lot longer and, and all that. But uh, yeah. So, well, anyway, I'm going to end the hey. recording just a second real quick. But I want to thank you for uh, coming on again. And it, it, it was just an absolute pleasure to kind of get to know you a little more as an artist. And, you know, I, I have so much respect for you. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Okay. Mm -hmm. Let me end this real quick.